Thank you. I'm going to stand up because there was a five-year study, I think, at UVA trying to figure out what the most uncomfortable chair possible would be. <laughs> and this is what it looks like. <laughs> so if you see any of these for sale, don't buy them. I don't care what the price is. Stay away from them. If your back is at all a problem, there should be a warning on here. Uh, Ten minutes could render you inoperable for six weeks. I'm going to make the introductions very brief for my colleagues. We had agreed we were just basically going to stand up and say we're all in the Corcoran Department of History at the University of Virginia. Two-thirds of us still are. Uh, Liz holds a chair, one of the senior chairs. Her specialty is mid-19th century United States history. John is, has a portfolio that includes a number of specialties, Southern Africa, photography, which he and I love to talk about. He's a serious photographer. My son's a photographer, too. That's the end of the autobiographical part of this. But they are, they are also both excellent teachers, and they deal with real people, which is to say non-academic people, which is a gift for people in academia who often are unable to communicate at all with people who aren't in academia. They become sort of mute and befuddled. Uh, that's not going to happen here today. My part of this program today is to set the stage in 15 minutes, uh, and I'm going to take fewer than that, I have, I'm not counting my introduction, I've got 15 minutes to talk about the ways in which the Civil War generation remembered the conflict. One of the hardest things to get students to understand is the difference between history and memory. That, and they often have no concept of that difference, that something actually happened in the past, but people remember it differently. All of you in this room, there are a number of you whose hair is the same color as mine. We've lived through a lot of the same events, but I'm sure that we have different takes on them. We have different memories of how those things played out. It's absolutely essential to be able to understand the difference between history and memory, or you're not going to get the history part of it right. And a part of that memory, a very important part of the memory, is the, uh, the memorial landscape that was created by the generation that lived through the conflict. The memorial, the Confederate landscape, which has been so much in the news lately, but there is also an equivalent Union landscape, memorial landscape, went up at exactly the same time. The heart of the memorial landscape production was from the 1880s through about the middle of the second decade of the 20th century. That's when the monuments went up in the south. That's when the monuments went up in the north. That's when many of the monuments went up in Washington, D.C., and so forth. So, we're going to try, we'll be talking about history and memory today, mainly memory, and what I want to do for the next few minutes is talk about the four principal ways in which the wartime generation chose to remember this most transformative event in United States history. There's no other event like the Civil War. There's nothing else even close that affected as large a percentage of the population so directly as the war. You cannot understand American history if you don't come to terms, try to come to terms with the Civil War. It's a culmination of what, uh, much of what came before, including dealing with the issue of slavery that's embedded in the Constitution and reading past the Civil War. If you don't know about the Civil War, you're not going to understand much about really central events after that. Here are the four major ways in which the wartime generation remembered the war. There were about 32 million Americans alive in 1860, and the most widely held view of the war is what I'll call the Union-caused memory of the war. I would say 19 or 20 million people would have said, this is the most important way to remember the war. 
This is mainly the white loyal population of the United States. That is the white percentage of the population that opposed secession and tried to defeat the Confederacy. For them, the most important issue of the war was saving the work of the founding generation, saving the constitutional form of government that conveyed to them things that they argued no one else in the Western world had. And those things were a voice in your own governance. Number one, that all white men could vote basically in the United States. It's a restricted franchise for us. It was breathtakingly broad within a mid-19th century context. You had a voice in your own governance and you had the chance to rise economically. Not a guarantee, but a chance to rise economically. You weren't doomed to be what your father was. The poster boy for this is Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln is the personification of the promise of the Union. And their attitude was that a group of slaveholding oligarchs were trying to undo the work of the founding generation. They don't really believe in small d democracy in the southern states, argued these loyal unionists. And if we don't suppress this rebellion, it will scuttle the work of the founders, and it will probably doom small d democracy in a world that has not really embraced it. And their world is the transatlantic world. That's what really mattered to them. So there's a great deal at stake here and a great deal at stake in a broader sense for those who argued that the union was something worth fighting for. One of the hardest things to get students to understand is why somebody from Maine would put on a uniform and risk his life to make South Carolina come back into the Union. Why wouldn't that person in Maine just say, finally, South Carolina left, glory hallelujah. Uh, I've been waiting for this to happen and now it finally has. If you don't understand the concept of Union and how powerful it was, Liz has written a great book on the meaning. That, the, the, that is the most politically charged word in the American vocabulary in the mid-19th century, Union is. Union. We've lost what, a sense of what it meant. If you don't grasp what it meant, you cannot possibly understand the American Civil War. So it is this. Now, and most of the people who celebrated the Union cause were happy that slavery was dead, but not for the reasons that we would want. They were happy because they saw slavery as the only internal issue that could threaten the integrity of the Union. Getting rid of slavery meant preserving the Union going forward. And it also punished the slaveholders who brought on the war, in their view, and helped defeat the Confederacy. Only a small, relatively small percentage of the white, loyal population considered this a real moral crusade to get rid of slavery. Some did, but the majority had this other view that slavery is, getting rid of slavery is related to saving the Union. I'd say 19 million or so people probably said this was the most important. Uh, outcome of the war. And they did all kinds of things to remember the Union cause. Why do we have Memorial Day, which they call Decoration Day? It was to honor the Union dead, the third of a million loyal soldiers who died in suppressing the rebellion. Uh, they erected statues, far more statues than the Confederates did, far, far more. And in just there in front of courthouses all across the North, the same kinds of things that we have now. The, the first large veterans organization in American history was the Grand Army of the Republic, made up of United States veterans. It also became the first major lobbying group in United States history, lobbying for veterans benefits. All kinds of things allowed the loyal citizenry to remember this fight for union. So that's one of the four. The second is what we can call the emancipation cause memory of the war. This, most of the four million plus African Americans in the United States would have said, 
and some white abolitionists and others would have said the most important thing that came out of the war is the death of slavery. That's the most important thing by far. Of course it's good that the Union was saved, but a Union that tolerated slavery was a deeply flawed Union. This is a Union without slavery that we can actually be proud of. This is the kind of Union that really sends a message to the rest of the world, a Union that will not countenance slavery. There are all kinds of ways that African Americans remembered the war as well. They had their own versions. They often called them Emancipation Days. They celebrated them at different times in different states. Uh, Juneteenth in Texas, uh, in much of Virginia, they used April 9th, as Liz has written about, the, because black troops were involved in the final pursuit at Appomattox. But they would have parades. They would have speeches, just as the Union end of things would. They celebrated, as I said, the salvation of the Union. But the, the central great outcome of the war in the emancipation memory of the war is the killing of what Frederick Douglass called the hell black system of slavery. And, and so it's gone. It's gone. That's a second, and I would say probably five million people maybe would have said this was the most important outcome of the war. Four million plus African American people in the United States and maybe up to a million white people. That may be an overstatement. The third memory stream of the war is what we now call the lost cause memory of the war. This is the former Confederate memory of the war. There are about <clears throat> five million white people who live in the South. About a half a million of them didn't support the Confederacy. They supported the United States. So say four and a half million uh, former Confederates, plus probably another half a million who lived in Kentucky and other border states. Kentucky became a Confederate state after the war, as many of you know, uh, when it was safer. It's very safe. Uh, Kentucky also ratified the 13th Amendment in 1976. So they thought about it for a century, and they thought, yes, slavery's bad. Uh, let's go ahead and ratify that. The Confederate memory of the war, they have a tougher, they have a tougher road to hoe than the loyal citizenry or African Americans who have emancipation to point to. How do you put a spin on a cataclysmic failure, which is what the former Confederates have to do? Among the white population of the United States, Confederates are the only ones who have suffered the kind of defeat that almost every other part of the world at one time or another has known. It's an un-American experience to suffer a shattering defeat in a war, a military occupation for a while, a range of political disabilities. That does not happen to white America. Well, it happened to Confederates, and they also had to deal with the fact that their decision to secede to protect the institution of slavery and I'll just say parenthetically, that is why they seceded there. And I know lots of people pretend that there's something else going on. Here's what else is going on. Nothing else is going on. <laughs> you secede to protect the institution of slavery. It's a prophylactic effort to protect an institution that's absolutely the governing social structure in the slaveholding states. And whether you're a slaveholder or not, you have a stake in slavery because it lets you control black people who you know don't want to be slaves, although you pretend later they love being slaves. God, the great old slavery days. They knew that wasn't true. They also believed, and they were right, that the Republican Party threatened the long-term viability of slavery. Why would they think that? Well, because Abraham Lincoln said it in the late antebellum years. The country cannot exist in the long-term half-slave and half-free. It's going to be one, all one or all the other. And everybody knew which one 
Lincoln wanted it to be. Presidents get to name Supreme Court justices. The White South got Dred Scott in 1857. Abraham Lincoln named five justices to the Supreme Court in one term. You're not going to get another Dred Scott case decision with people that Abraham Lincoln puts on the Supreme Court. And the White South also controlled more wealth than any other part of the nation by far. Property and slaves were worth $3 billion in 1860. The value of all manufacturing interests, all railroads put together in the nation, 2.2 billion in 1860. So there's a social dimension and an economic dimension to why you're going to secede and protect slavery, and you failed. And you lost perhaps a third of your entire military-age white male population in the war. Catastrophically larger than any other percentage that the United States has lost in any war. How do you make sense of that? You make sense of it, number one, by pretending the war wasn't about slavery, because you know you're an outlier there. Number two, you argued that you never could have won. Never could have won. It was a hopeless fight from the beginning against impossible odds. And it was for high constitutional principle. We argued the Confederates are the real inheritors of the revolutionary era tradition. And we fought a good war, a good fight for high principle, and we lost because the Yankees had too much of everything. And so here we are. And we can walk away from this with some sense of honor, even though it was a catastrophic failure that lost one of the great ironies in American history is the thing that secession was intended to preserve would have lasted probably for a half century at least. It's gone in four years because of this effort to protect it. And the, the person at the center of the lost cause understanding of the war is R.E. Lee. You can talk about him without talking about slavery very much. You can talk, he is a good general. He's a Christian gentleman. He has a lot of pluses that you can talk about. So that's the lost cause version. That's the version that's in place in Charlottesville. That UVA, of course, was a Confederate institution during the war, virtually emptied the place out during the war. Uh, all the young men from UVA went into the Confederate Army. Why wouldn't they? It's a flagship university in the most important slave-holding state in the nation. What, are they all going to say, you know, I think I'll join the Union Army? No, they go into the Confederate Army. The fourth memory tradition is the reconciliation cause tradition. This came really later in the century. And it involves some people in the North and some people in the South saying, let's don't talk about who was right or wrong. Let's talk about the American virtues that were on display uh, during the war. And that is gallantry and devotion to a cause. We won't talk about which cause was better or not. We're going to airbrush emancipation and black people out of the picture and just talk about the war as a, a great trial for the nation that resulted in a, a reinvigorated republic that by the end of the 19th century had the largest economy in the world and was poised to become a great nation on the world stage. If you want perfect examples of reconciliation cause rhetoric, you can go online and Google Woodrow Wilson's speech at Gettysburg on the 50th anniversary in 1913 or Franklin Roosevelt's speech at Gettysburg on the 75th anniversary in 1938. Those are perfect examples of reconciliationist rhetoric. Not a mention of the cause of the war, not a mention of slavery, not a mention of who was right or wrong, just these, these gallant old veterans here who fought bravely in the war. So those are the four main traditions. For a long time, the lost cause was very prominent in national understandings of the war. And key films played a role in that. A Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind both have powerful lost cause themes, and those are the two most important Civil War movies ever made, by far, nothing else even close uh, to those two. 
The lost cause now, however, as we all know, it's in retreat in the public sphere uh, in, a, in a very uh, visible and obvious way. And in Hollywood, Hollywood has abandoned the lost cause. It embraced it for a very long time. There are some aftershocks, but not very many. I don't have time to talk about it. The emancipation cause has become, I think, the default understanding of the war in many ways in the United States now. It has, and this has really changed since the centennial when I was a boy, where it was reconciliation and the lost cause were most obvious. That's not true now. Lost cause is, is receding quickly, emancipation cause advancing dramatically. Reconciliation is always around in one way or another. Uh, it's all Hollywood loves it, and it's a kind of a good story. The, I won't step on Liz's toes here. I don't know exactly what she's going to say, but her work on App Appomattox is sort of seen as the point where reconciliation really begins. Lee and Grant, and I won't say anything else there, but it's a powerful image. When you drive into Appoma drive toward Appomattox now, you see these big sign billboards that say where the healing began. Um, I won't say any more about that. <laughs> the cause that's absent now, and here's another one of history's little ironies, is the union cause. The union cause is nowhere to be seen now because we don't understand what union meant, and we have no sense of the union cause, and yet it was by far the most widely held of these understandings of the war among the wartime generation itself. So it's a wonderful way to look at how memory plays out differently uh, than history might have, and how complex memory is. There's almost never just one memory of anything. <laughs> and Liz is next. <laughs> All right, friends, I'm going to elaborate on what Gary has told you by focusing some on the South and suggesting that contest between these four memory traditions which Gary sketched out helps explain what we see on the southern landscape, namely Confederate memorials. And that contest and its winners and losers and, and ebb and flow over time also helps to explain what we don't see. I'm going to try to bring to light a sort of hidden history of southern unionism or of anti-Confederate southerners. So to build on Gary's uh, uh, comments about the lost cause tradition. It is important to note that Confederate statues, which pr proliferated at the time the lost cause was at its peak of popularity, late 19th, early 20th century. These Confederate statues were designed to embody the lost cause tradition that Gary has described. The, the statues were never merely commemorative, that is, designed to mourn the dead. They were overtly political. The Lost Cause message was a political message. The essence of the Lost Cause creed, as Gary has explained, was that the Confederate war was righteous. Uh, and this was a set of arguments that the Southern way of life, slavery included, was noble and benign, and also an argument, very much a central lost cause tenant, that Southerners were unanimous in their desire to defend that benign and noble way of life. So Confederate statues that went up in places like Charlottesville in the late 19th century and early 20th century had political 
uh, import and messages built right in. They were intended to control the, the present of the people who put them on, the, the, that uh, turn of the century era, era. They were also intended, in a sense, to shape our future. The statues were intended to symbolize white supremacy and to guard against challenges to white supremacy. The statues in the lost cause tradition were intended to give white Southern political dominance a sort of air of certainty and of timelessness. And in terms of uh, eras in American history, this period, a uh, uh, turn of the century era, in which we see such a, a romanticization of the Old South and the Confederacy and the lost cause tradition, goes hand in hand with a prolonged campaign in that same era of white supremacist terrorism and violence uh, that was uh, uh, an effort to stamp out black citizenship, stamp out voting, and to impose Jim Crow segregation. All these things go together. And, and in terms of the sort of complex relationship between these memory traditions, Gary has written uh, brilliantly on this uh, subject, um, this era of uh, an ascendant lost cause worked hand in hand with that reconciliation impulse. There was an affinity between the lost cause memory tradition and the reconciliation um, tradition. And the, perhaps the best way to put this, it's complex, is to observe that the lost cause defense of the South, the lost cause creed, represented the conditions on which the white South would accept reunion. That is to say, white Southerners were willing to reconcile with the North, provided white Southerners could have a share of the moral high ground in the story of the war, provided Northerners were willing to celebrate Confederate heroism uh, and to stay out of Southern politics. Those were sort of the conditions on which former Confederates would agree to reunion. And, and many white Northerners accepted those terms of reconciliation, if you will. Um, because of a shared commitment to white supremacy, racism, a deep and profound problem in the North as well as in the South, and also because of a belief on the part of many Northerners who embrace, embrace reconciliation that unity among whites nationally was a necessary precondition for economic prosperity, for global power, for the nation to thrive. So the power of the lost cause tradition in the late 19th century and then well into the 20th, as Gary explained, uh, helps to explain why there are Confederate statues in Charlottesville and all across the South. That tradition and its persistent power also explain what we don't see. And let me uh, explain what I mean by that. The lost cause memory tradition, as Gary suggested, was an effort to suppress rival and competing memory traditions, traditions that celebrated the Union victory and celebrated emancipation, celebrated those things as righteous and as great achievements for humankind. Lost Cause tried to um, suppress those, those traditions. So the Lost Cause tradition, again, with its emphasis on Southern unity and unanimity, Key figures in the lost cause tradition are, are the so-called faithful slaves who stood by their masters during a, a wartime, for example. The lost cause tradition conceals the fact that 150,000 black Southerners, most of them ex-slaves, fought for the Union Army. This is the most important uh, uh, 
uh, sort of element of Southern Unionism that I'll highlight today. And these soldiers represent a vanguard from a larger mass exodus during the Civil War, a mass exodus of slaves from plantations to Union lines. Freedom followed the Union Army in the Civil War. As the Union Army penetrated the South, slaves calculated that uh, flight might succeed. They left uh, plantations and farms. Uh, to, to go to the Union Army, lobbied hard to be enlisted as soldiers, finally were en masse in 1863. It's important to note that black Southerners who fled farms and fl plantations, oftentimes as family units, women and children uh, included, African Americans in the South uh, contributed to the Union war effort in a huge range of ways, not only by wearing uniforms, but also as scouts, spies, nurses, teachers, and so on. Most famous example, Harriet Tubman, who was a wartime scout for the Union Army after a long uh, uh, and heroic career in the Underground Railroad. So this African-American contribution to the Union war effort was acknowledged in, during the war itself by the Union's preeminent leaders as absolutely decisive to Union victory. Lincoln and Grant both paid tribute to these contributions. Grant, for example, regarded emancipation in conjunction with black enlistment in the Union Army as the heaviest blow yet given to the Confederacy, uh, as, uh, as he and Lincoln saw it. So in the aftermath of the war, African Americans, led by veterans of the United States Colored Troops, or USCT, as African American Union soldiers were designated, they elaborated their own memory tradition, the emancipation tradition, uh, as uh, Gary has explained, emphasized the role of blacks in ending slavery and winning the war. As Gary explained, they had their own commemorative calendar with dates like the Emancipation Proclamation, the fall of Richmond, Appomattox, Juneteenth, uh, the liberation of Texas um, uh, on that calendar. They celebrated African-American bravery at battles like Fort Wagner and Olusti and Port Hudson and so on. But because of conditions in the South, African-Americans who tried to keep this history alive, as it were, um, faced a, 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 a terrible uphill battle in the midst of continued prescription African-Americans in the South didn't have the economic funds or the political power to place statues on the Southern landscape. And as a consequence, there are virtually no statues in the South that mark or acknowledge or celebrate um, those black veterans who secured Union victory and essentially saved the country. There's no statues that acknowledge that it was slave resistance that eroded slavery. Uh, virtually no statues that, for example, honor the black lawmakers who do, during Reconstruction worked with some white allies to bring interracial democracy and modern day social services like public education to, um, to the South. Now, to be sure, African-American leaders in this era, in the post-war era, men like Frederick Douglass, tried to preserve the memory of uh, wartime heroism, but they were swimming against powerful tides. We can hear them lament in the late 19th century the growing power of the lost cause. Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, observed in 1878, uh, memorably, there was a right side and a wrong side in the late war which no sentiment ought to cause us to forget. And Douglas made this point in 1878 because he felt Americans were forgetting uh, uh, the, the Union War and the emancipation uh, tradition. And what I'd like to emphasize um, here is that there are important Virginia dimensions and even local dimensions to this story that I'm telling. There were, um, among those 
African-American leaders who worked hard in the late 19th century to preserve this history was, for example, Joseph T. Wilson, um, a Norfolk uh, native who served in two U USCT uh, regiments during the war, including the famous Glory Regiment, uh, 54th, portrayed in the great movie um, Glory. Uh, after the war, he returns to Virginia, becomes an important civil rights activist and historian, and he writes a book called The Black Phalanx that um, records the history of African Americans in the military, uh, and he does this believing that black military service is being forgotten and swept under the rug by the reconciliation and lost cause traditions. Men like Wilson, in effect, are laying a groundwork, creating a documentary record that will make it possible for modern day historians to come along in the wake of the modern civil rights revolution and rediscover this history that has been suppressed and swept under the rug. And, and we've been very focused on this history in our new UVA Civil War Center, the now Civil War Center, which Gary founded uh, and of which I've served as associate director, has um, uh, uncovered some fascinating stories of local USCT men. For a long, long time, it was assumed that there was no uh, uh, USCT um, story here in Albemarle County. The Union Army doesn't arrive on the scene here until very late in the game, until, uh, until March of 1865. Difficult for black men to reach the Union Army and to uh, enlist African-American men in Albemarle County. But as we researched the USCT, we found that there were significant numbers of men in, Af in Albemarle County born here who serve in USCT regiments. And these men are men with Albemarle roots, Albemarle birthplaces native to the county who are dispersed over the course of the antebellum period and war, dispersed by the slave trade, dispersed by migration, dispersed by flight. Uh, and they then enlist in all the places that they are dispersed to, in Pennsylvania, Louisiana, Kentucky, all across the country. We have discovered the names of 250 such men, and we're trying to uh, reconstruct their, uh, their stories. Now, these um, stories yield some wonderful sort of human interest uh, uh, stories, the story, for example, of James T.S. Taylor, a free uh, black here in Albemarle County who fled to Union lines in Northern Virginia, joined a regiment in D.C. and returned to Charlottesville after the war to become a prominent Republican politician and activist. But all of these individual stories also tell a bigger story. That is, even from this small data set of 250 men, we can address some big themes. One of those themes is the Virginia roots of the USCT, these 150,000 men who fought, uh, African-American men who fought in the Union Army. Generally, when we reckon which state contributed the most soldiers to the USCT, we do it by where men enlisted, the recruiting station they found and enlisted at, so many enlisted in Kentucky, so many in Louisiana, and so on. If we reckon these numbers based on where men were born, we would will find Virginia to be the, uh, the heart of the USCT because of the ways that Virginia was uh, uh, um, uh, at the heart of the slave system. And, and uh, men, again, with Virginia roots populate the USCT and are essential uh, to saving uh, the Union and their uh, USCT service. We can also observe, if we look at that, history of black soldiers, we see in practice and at work 
a particular kind of nationalism and patriotism, distinct sort of nationalism and patriotism. And I'll pick up here on a point Gary made about the way the Union figured in the emancipation tradition. These African-American men who joined the Union Army were fighting for, as one scholars put it, the unfulfilled union. Not, not the union as it was, but the union as it might be and should be. And they, they faced, again, a prescription in the South, um, uh, discrimination in the North. Um, they were uh, fighting to uh, make the union uphold its founding ideals. That's very much how they saw their project. And then finally, in terms of the big significance of this, small data set of 250 local men who fought for the Union Army. These stories matter because they remind us that although it's our shorthand to equate the South and the Confederacy, to say, oh, the South lost the Civil War, the North won the Civil War, in fact, we shouldn't do that. That shorthand is very misleading. There were substantial numbers of Southerners who supported the Union. Of course, African Americans were Unionists for obvious reasons, but, but here I'll pivot and tell you something that will be more surprising to you, and that's that there was a small but symbolically significant number of white Southerners who sided with the Union during the Civil War. And again, this is a history that um, has been largely swept under the rug. I'll quote you some striking statistics. A historian named William Freeling has re recently written a book called The South Versus the South. The title of the book sort of gets at the thesis divisions within the South. And Freeling notes, as I've just noted, that Southern African Americans supplied 150,000 Union soldiers. But he also notes that whites from the border South slave states, Kentucky, Maryland, Delaware, and Missouri, supplied another 200,000 Union soldiers and that Confederate state whites added another 100,000 Union soldiers. So you have 300,000 white men from slave states fought in the Union Army. 300,000 white men from slave states fought in the Union Army. Now again, perspective is very, very important. That number of 100,000 white men from Confederate states, states that seceded fighting for the Union, is a small fraction of the 900,000 men from those Confederate states who fought for the Confederacy, but that Though uh, a minority, these unionists are, are very, very significant. They were thorns in the side of Confederates. They were um, uh, symbolically very important to Northerners for whom the purpose of the war was to bring the errant Southern brethren back into the fold. The presence of white Southern unionists gave Lincoln and Grant and others hope that um, Southerners could be restored to the fellowship of the Union, that this group could be a somewhat of a vanguard. Um, these Unionists uh, uh, represented for Northerners the tyranny of the Confederate government. The Confederate government did all it could to stamp out white Southern Unionism. Unionists were targets of Confederate policies or property confiscated, forced into the army, uh, imprisoned, intimidated, harassed, and so on. Um, and uh, they became sort of martyrs, very visible martyrs to the Union cause. And here, too, I'll begin to wrap up now. We should observe that this is a story with, with local stakes and local dimensions for us in Virginia. Um, uh, to give a few examples, the state of Virginia provides some of the most significant white Southern Unionists in the Union war effort. Um, Union generals Winfield Scott and George Thomas were Virginians. 
and uh, a figure um, who I've written a book about, endlessly fascinating woman named Elizabeth Van Lu, a Richmond-born uh, elite white woman uh, in the Confederate capital, ran the most important union intelligence gathering, espionage operation during the Civil War. And she had a union underground, a sort of interracial band of uh, unionists always sort of dodging the Confederate authorities, funneling information to US Grant uh, uh, during the final year of the war. And here, too, there's even a, a local story in a more um, particular sense. The NOW Center in our research on Southern Unionism has discovered the names of some 58 UVA alumni who fought for the Union. And again, this is a small fraction of the men who fought for the Confederacy. But, but it's a fascinating group of men. And, and, and again, a small sample allows us to address big themes. In this case, the big theme is divisions. Unionists were very divided among themselves, these white Southern Unionists. And those divisions help explain why it was they couldn't stem the tide of secession. Some of these white Southern Unionists from UVA who joined the Union Army were imagining a new South, a South without slavery, a South uh, the, uh, that might model itself economically and socially on the, nor uh, the North. Some of these unionists were very committed to slavery and to the old way, and they were nostalgic for the South the way it was before the secessionists came to power and disrupted um, uh, the union. So the UVA's 58 unionists run this, uh, this gamut. Um, but the story of UVA's unionists also is a, is a window into one of the most sort of enduring themes in Civil War scholarship, and that is the theme of how the war divided families against each other. And we see that very clearly in the Breckenridge family. One of these UVA unionists was a young man named Joseph Cabell Breckenridge, uh, born in 1842 to a prominent uh, Kentucky family, enrolls in UVA in 1858. Joseph um, Cabell Breckenridge had two brothers in the Confederate Army. He had a cousin, John C. Breckinridge, who was a Confederate general and secretary of war. But Joseph and his brother Charles chose to fight for the Union. This family divided right uh, down the middle. Joseph would serve under George Thomas, the famous Virginian Union general. He'd fight in the Battle of Shiloh. He'd be taken prisoner outside of Atlanta, eventually released. And uh, this man was deeply patriotic. He would remain in the Army after the Civil War, fight in the Spanish-American War, uh, be an active member of the Grand Army of the Republic, the venerable veterans organization uh, on the Union side. So again, to conclude, um, just as we don't see statues on the Southern landscape to black Unionists, to, to African-Americans who gave life and limb to the Union, nor do we see, with a few very rare exceptions, statues in the South to white Southern Unionists. And this has to do with the competition, the rivalry between these memory traditions that Gary sketched out. The explicit purpose of the lost cause tradition was to sweep this history of Southern descent under the rug and to um, depict, to imagine that there had been a degree of white unity in the Confederacy that had never actually existed uh, during the Civil War. So again, this, all of this information should inform the way we think about the memorial landscape. We have to recognize the power of statues, these Confederate statues, to um, uh, conceal and distort history. Thank you.
this chair is that it did not collapse under my weight. So I'm very happy about that. And now I'm going to try to do two things at once, which is to hold this microphone and to work the clicker. Um, so wish me luck on that. I'm going to start where Gary and Liz um, um, were talking about. I'm going to start with the Civil War, but then I'm going to move forward. I'm going to move into um, the late 19th and early 20th century, and I'm still concerned with memorial landscapes and concerned with how we see things, how we understand history, the difference between history and memory. Um, but let me start here. Um, this is, as you probably all know, Charlottesville's statue of Robert E. Lee downtown um, across the street from the library and the historical society. I've been thinking a lot about Confederate memorials and I've been thinking a lot about Robert E. Lee over the last two years and it's not because I'm a Civil War historian. I am not. I'm not even a historian of the United States, really. But I served on the Blue Ribbon Commission, the Charlottesville City's Blue Ribbon Commission on um, race, public memorials, and public space. And what our Blue Ribbon Commission was supposed to do was to make recommendations to City Council about what to do with our Confederate memorials. And along the way, we were also supposed to make recommendations about how Charlottesville could remember other histories that haven't been properly remembered, properly told. So Gary and Liz have both done a good job talking about these two statues and their various meanings. And let me, this is obviously Stonewall Jackson. Let me go back to Lee. I learned a lot from both Gary and Liz when I was serving on the commission because I had a lot of questions and they had a lot of answers. And what they both told me was that when we look at a statue like this, it has layers of meaning, right? So there is a layer of meaning to this statue which embodies the lost cause, that, that, that heroic and honorable fight for the South. There's a layer of meaning that has to do with the era in which it was erected. It was the era of Jim Crow. I'll say a little bit more about that. But it's an era where African Americans have been effectively stripped of their constitutional rights. Segregation is a powerful force here in Charlottesville. Racial terror is a part of the everyday life of African Americans, whether it's a lynching or the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. So it's that period where this statue is erected. That's part of the meaning of the statue is to send a message to the African American community. And of course, part of it is now what happened on August 12th. You know, the death of Heather Heyer, the blood of Heather Heyer is now part of the meaning of this statue, the terrorist attacks on Charlottesville last summer. So I've been thinking a lot about statues. I've been thinking a lot about meaning. And I've been thinking a lot about how they speak. They speak in a visual language, right? And they tell particular kinds of stories in a powerful visual language. You don't have to know very much about Stonewall Jackson to understand that you're looking up at a, at, at a heroic man. Um, you're looking up at somebody who is admirable. You're looking at somebody who was clearly a warrior and a warrior that we sense immediately for a just cause. Um, this is a very powerful message and like I said, you don't have to know very much about um, the man himself to understand it. So the period of um, time that 
the statues were erected, it was that period of racial terror and Jim Crow, as I was talking about, and we're used to understanding a period by reading things, right? So here's a front page story from the Daily Progress, the Daily Progress that is still Charlottesville's newspaper, and it's talking about the reconstitution of the Ku Klux Klan here in, here in the city, and it's telling us that the Ku Klux Klan was reconstituted at a moonlit ceremony at Thomas Jefferson's grave and that the people who participated were the leading businessmen and professionals of the city. I mean, it wasn't so-called poor white trash who were, who were reconstituting the Klan. It was, um, it was the blue bloods of the city. And the Klan continues to be, for the period of the early 20s, the Klan is a major force here in Charlottesville and celebrated on the pages of the Daily Progress as if it's no different from the Chamber of Commerce. So this is the, the, this is the atmosphere in which the statues were erected, but it's also the atmosphere in which an African-American community was living. I was thinking about the statues and the way that they tell a story, and then last summer the Charlottesville, Albemarle Charlottesville Historical Society put on display some of its Ku Klux Klan robes from the period. And it's another kind of, of understanding history, right? This is not a newspaper story. This is not a text which you read. But this is more like a mo memorial or a monument or a statue. It's, um, it's, it's a visual message that this thing is, is sending. And, you know, I sensed it very powerfully. This is my picture. I was standing right over it trying to understand um, what this robe was embodying. I'm going to skip over Thomas Jefferson. Um, I wanted to say something about the complex legacy of Thomas Jefferson. I wanted to honor him for um, creating this university. I wanted to honor him for writing the words that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, those are very, very powerful words, and there's a reason why people like Martin Luther King quoted them all the time, because they embody what we really want this country to be all about. But there's another side of Thomas Jefferson, you know, a, a side of Thomas Jefferson that helped to set the stage for the kinds of things that I've been showing you that set the stage for the society that erected those monuments, for the society that created the Ku Klux Klan, for the society that created a Jim Crow society and enacted racial terrorism on African Americans. I want to kind of skip over this just to say that you know, racism as an ideology has a history, and its history is intertwined with those good things about Enlightenment thought that we honor Thomas Jefferson for. But I also wanted to note that there's a real local connection to, there's a local connection to white supremacy to the ideologies of racism that we were talking about. Professor Paul Barringer of the University of Virginia wrote in 1900 a pamphlet that was called The American Negro. And um, if you scratch a Negro, you find a savage. And it may be asked what our African American is, the true Negro, the lowest of the blacks. 
He wrote this in 1900. This is two years after the last lynching in Charlottesville, which was in 1898. It happened at what is now the entrance to Farmington Country Club. An African-American man who had been accused of rape was taken off a train and hung from a locust tree right near the tracks. Two years later, Beringer is writing this. Two years afterwards, the 1902 Constitution of the state of Virginia is enacted, which strips African Americans of virtually all of their constitutional rights. So the ideas that are being generated by the likes of Thomas Jefferson and the likes of Paul Barringer have consequences. And it's a period where the University of Virginia really is, has become, very self-consciously, um, an intellectual home of white supremacist thought. It's a terrible period for African Americans here in Charlottesville. And I've been thinking about, well, how do we understand this visually, right? That Liz was talking about the kinds of history that are not memorialized, that are not part of the landscape. And talking about African American men from Charlottesville and Albemarle who served in the US colored troops, talking about a variety of kinds of history that we don't have memorials for. When I was serving on the Blue Ribbon Commission, we heard lots of people tell us that we wanted memorials to African-American history here in Charlottesville. But building statues is really expensive. Um, building out of stone and bronze and marble is tremendously expensive and it's hard to do. I've been thinking about how do we visualize this other history? Well, this guy in the passenger seat of, the, um, of this Ford, it's a Model A, not the Model A we all know, but this is a Model A Ford. That guy's Rufus Halsinger. Rufus Halsinger was a commercial photographer here in Charlottesville. The University of Virginia owns 10,000 of his negatives. Of those 10,000 negatives, about 5,000 are portraits. Of those 5,000 portraits, about 500 are African Americans. And they're African Americans from the period right around the time that the Confederate memorials were erected. And so his pictures bring us from the late, 19, late 1800s into the 1920s. He's a commercial photographer. He's sitting in that car. It's near where his studio was. It's on West Main Street, just past the bridge, if you're going towards downtown. Those buildings are still standing. There is a high-end butcher shop in one of the um, storefronts, and the other storefront is that Italian restaurant. So that building's still standing. That's near where his, his um, studio was. And the thing about Rufus Halsinger is that he was a craftsman who would make a good picture of anybody who came into his studio wanting their picture made, and his archive gives us an incredible record of two kinds of views of African Americans. One is that it shows us African Americans as they wish to be seen. African Americans from Charlottesville, from Albemarle, from the surrounding counties who would come into his studio wanting a picture that reflected their vision of themselves. So we have images like this, and I have to say that sometimes we know something about the image and sometimes we don't. And so we know that one of these women is probably Sally Powell because we have ledger books from the studio that tell us who paid for the picture. So Sally Powell's probably one of the women, but which one of the women 
uh, we don't know, and we don't know, of course, who the other woman would be. Now, this is, a, this is a problem for those of us who are putting an exhibition together, and I'll talk about the exhibition a little bit later. But these images, a view of African Americans at precisely the time the statues are being raised, at a time when Jim Crow and segregation are pervasive, a time when lynching is still an important fact of life in the American South, are creating images of themselves that look like this, which give us a much more complicated picture of the African American community. These are people who are refusing to be defined by their oppression and are also refusing to be defined by the kinds of cliches and stereotypes, those demeaning caricatures of African Americans that were so pervasive at the time in popular, in popular visual culture. Gary mentioned the um, uh, Birth of a Nation, which was released just a year uh, before this picture was taken with those images of the black beast um, rapist uh, who was um, such a danger to American society. Now, Halsinger Archive gives us two views of African Americans. One view of African Americans is how they wished to be seen, how they saw themselves. The other is how their employers saw them, right? And their employers saw them in their place, in their accustomed roles in Charlottesville society. So you have images like this, which are clearly not commissioned by African Americans. Images like this fraternity banquet with the African American waiters along the margins. Images like this, African-American man working on a rail line. Images like this, the groom. Images like this, the glee club in blackface makeup doing a minstrel show. This is pretty common, by the way. Rufus Halsinger was the photographer for the University of Virginia. Um, university sporting events, university clubs and activities, university faculty members. Um, anybody connected to the university was likely to go to Rufus Halsinger's studio to have a picture made. So there's this kind of image of African Americans, African Americans who are seen through the eyes of white society, African Americans who are depicted in their roles as servants, African Americans who are clearly placed in a particular position within the racial hierarchy. But even these pictures can be really deceiving. So we know something about some of the people in the pictures, and we know something about Margaret Lewis. Margaret Lewis had been born into slavery. But after the Civil War, she became one of the key people in the creation of a school here in Charlottesville for freed people, for former slaves. Two school teachers from New England, white school teachers, came to Charlottesville to open a school. They couldn't have done it without Margaret Lewis. Margaret Lewis was their connection to the African American community. Both of them wrote memoirs about their time here in Charlottesville, and they talked very highly about Margaret Lewis and about her husband, who was one of the teachers in the schools. So, yeah, she was beloved as a nursemaid to a whole series of prominent Charlottesville families, and when she died, she had a, a very respectful obituary in the paper talking about her as a faithful and loyal servant. 
But the other part of her was as somebody who made it possible for the freed people to get the kind of education that the so craved. In any case, these pictures open up a range of ways of talking about the African-American community. So African-American women would far more likely be want to hold their own children in this kind of pose rather than somebody else's children. African-Americans with style and panache and macho swagger. African-Americans like Dr. George Ferguson, who became the um, first uh, physician, first African-American physician to settle permanently here in Charlottesville. The little boy is George Jr. George Jr. grows up to be one of the most prominent leaders of the NAACP here in Charlottesville at the time that the NAACP sued the school board to desegregate the schools. And those of you who know Charlottesville history know that Charlottesville closed the two schools that the federal judge ordered to be um, integrated rather than seat black children next to white children. In any case, George Ferguson Jr grows up to be an important member of the community. Now, very little about these. One of the things that I love about Halsinger's pictures is that it represents a range of the African-American community. So we saw the most elite member of the community, Dr. George Ferguson and his family. These are clearly working women, you know? Um, but they are presenting themselves to the camera with as much dignity, with as much self-possession as the Ferguson family did. So what I love about these photos is their ability to open a window on the African-American community that has simply been closed and to show us things that we haven't seen and don't know. So what are we gonna, uh, and this contrast here, right? So Fayette Johnson, going to the studio, having proudly served in the Army during World War I, fighting overseas for freedoms that he did not have here at home. And the Daily Progress chooses to caricature African-American servicemen like this. So what do we want to do? I'm going to skip over this and skip over these pictures, as powerful as they are. Pictures that show us community as well as individuals, African-American church that was torn down during urban renewal here in Charlottesville, African-American businesses, football teams. There are a group of us, faculty members here at UVA. Um, computer science, the English department, the Woodson Institute. We're curating an exhibition. We're in the early stages of that. We want to bring these pictures out into the public. We want to put them in the landscape. We want to make them a, a way of visualizing a history that most Charlottesvillians don't know or have forgotten. We're thinking about, we're planning two exhibitions, one here, one at the African American Heritage Center downtown. The one here will be for teaching. The one downtown will bring these images out into the community. They will be exhibition quality prints. After the exhibition, we're gonna give them away. We want them at the courthouse, at City Hall, in the schools, in churches. 
We want an online component. One of our members is a computer scientist, and he's also involved in digital humanities. We want a deep and rich online experience where you can do all kinds of interesting things, and we want to literally put the pictures on the landscape. So these, this is a kind of proof of concept. This was done, as you can see, 2015 at the Look 3 Photo Festival, but very inexpensively, you can make these more than life-size enlargements of these images and put them up um, on the walls. And so we're imagining these as murals on blank walls all over the city of Charlottesville. So even without text, we're changing the way that people in this city understand their history. And I'm going to end right here because this is my favorite picture and she's so beautiful. Okay, we've got uh, a little more than 10 minutes left, so I'll just open up the floor to any questions or comments that anyone has, and there's one right there. I'm gonna stand up. Yes, where two of us are gonna sit down. And we're casting no blame at the people who put these chairs in here. Althea, you're off the hook. You're, you're off the hook. Yes. Right. And, uh, and I've seen the, of course, the Johnny Red statue of Court Square. And over the years, I've gone north and looked at some of the statues up north. And it's interesting. You look at the faces, and it's the same face, different equipment, different uniforms. But I understand that that's because these statues were being made by the same foundry uh, in Massachusetts and maybe uh, in Chicago. And so, um, and the same with the, with the, the Lee statue. You look at the, at the Grand statue in uh, D.C., they look very similar, except for the Paul Goodloe McIntyre was a man of his time. And so there's no evidence at all that he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, but he was certainly a white supremacist. Absolutely he was a white supremacist. He gave a lot of things to the, uh, to the University of Virginia and the city of Charlottesville, but what he was doing was creating segregated 
public spaces, right? So uh, most notoriously, he gives the land for McIntyre Park, which indeed says that it's for the white citizens of Charlottesville. For the black citizens of Charlottesville, there is a separate and unequal park that's for them, what is now Washington Park. He erects two statues to Confederate heroes that I'll let Gary talk about the meaning of those statues. You don't have to be a Ku Klux Klanner to understand that those statues are embodying the ideology of the lost cause, of the idea that the South was not about slavery and that there was something honorable about what they were doing. Um, McIntyre gives money to the segregated public schools. He gives money for the segregated um, library in Charlottesville that black people could not use. Um, the park in which the Lee statue is built was not segregated by law, but every African American understood that that park was not for you. Right, so uh, we in the Blue Ribbon Commission, we talked to the elders in the community and said, no, we never went to Lee Park. We understood that we were not supposed to go into Lee Park. Um, so, you know, McIntyre wasn't, there's no evidence that he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, but there's plenty of evidence that he was part and parcel in not just the existence of this segregated Jim Crow society, but that he used his money to further it, to reinforce it, um, and to strengthen it. So, I don't know, I mean, Goodloe McIntyre, I don't know where you were going with wanting to talk about Paul Goodloe McIntyre, but um, I'm gonna stop right there. I really <laughs> don't know. I'm going to, we don't have to, the problem with history is that it's complicated. And we don't have time to really do a lot about this. I, there, you're, all elements of the Confederate memorial landscape are not the same. And I divide the ones in Charlottesville into two groups. I put the statue in the University Cemetery, which went up in 1893. Uh, the tablets that were on the front of the rotunda, which went up in 1906 and the monument in front of the courthouse downtown, which went up in 1909, I can consider those actual Confederate monuments because the impetus for them came from ladies' memorial groups and actual veterans. The, the, the two big equestrian statues, which are the most visible ones and came later, I don't really consider them Confederate uh, because the impetus doesn't come from Confederates to put those up. And they're part of, here's the way Liz mentioned, and because there's, this is very frustrating not to have time to really talk about this stuff, the memorial traditions did overlap. And there is a major overlap between the lost cause and reconciliation. And the statue that went up to R.E. Lee here in 1924 was one year before Congress at the instigation of a member of the House of Representatives from Michigan said that Arlington would become the Lee National Memorial. That's 1925, that Congress decided that, that the Arlington House that we all know would become a memorial to R.E. Lee. The very next year, the United States Mint issued a coin, a real coin, not just, I mean, an actual coin you could go buy 50 cents worth of stuff with that had R.E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson on it and celebrated what was then an effort underway to create a huge Confederate monument at Stone Mountain, Georgia. Gutzen Borglum was at that point going to be the sculptor that changed later. But my point is, this is part of a much broader, this isn't just something that's happening in Charlottesville. It's part of a much broader 
national trend that sees these two interpretive uh, streams from the Civil War generation coming together. And uh, one of the things Frederick, Liz quoted Frederick Douglass, one of the things that upset Frederick Douglass as early as 1870 was the number of very favorable obituaries of R.E. Lee in northern newspapers, in, all, in major cities across the north. He talked about what he called the nauseating flatteries of Robert E. Lee. There's already uh, some of that going on, but it really hits its stride as you move into the 20th century. And the Lee statue here and what's going on with Arlington and what's going on elsewhere, I think it is part of a broader and more complicated uh, landscape of memorialization. Uh, so there's, I don't think any, nobody would deny, you cannot deny that there isn't a commemorative remember our dead element to those first three monuments that I mentioned here. I don't find that so much in the, in the other ones, but in the first three, yes. And, and it's the participation of these ladies groups, the pre-UDC, UDC comes later, United Daughters of the Confederacy, but ladies memorial associations began this even, even earlier, overseeing the handling of the Confederate dead. So there's certainly, but, there's, but you can combine things. They're, they're not all one thing or all another thing. Uh, you can come, they can carry out more than one purpose. They do have messages on them. Those Confederate monuments have the messages that I talked about. Overwhelming odds, an absolutely gallant cause. Those are there on the one in front of the courthouse. They're there on the one in the, in the university cemetery, which is the oldest one. So it's, there's a complexity here that has elements of all the things that we've been talking about here today. But if I were making a typology for the monuments in Charlottesville, I'd have two in one category, and they're also in the same category with, I mean, the same guy. He also wrote checks for Lewis and Clark and George Rogers Clark. Uh, those big monuments, I'd put those in one category, put the Confederate ones in another one, and talk about the ways in which they do the same things in some fashion and in the, way, the ways in which they don't. That's too long an answer. <laughs> Time is our enemy up here. We need, not only did John cut his presentation in half, we don't, we, we never have enough time. Let me say something, one thing about the Ku Klux Klan. Um, the Ku Klux Klan arising in Charlottesville in the late, late teens and early 1920s was not a Charlottesville phenomenon, it was a national phenomenon. The Ku Klux Klan was not a southern phenomenon, it was an American phenomenon. The Ku Klux Klan was as big in Indiana as it was in Alabama. Um, it was what historians call the second Klan. The Klan paraded down Pennsylvania Avenue in their regalia flying American flags. So it's not, if there was one thing that Americans in this, white Americans in this period could agree on, it was white supremacy. You know, so the Klan was a national phenomenon. The belief, the, the value of white supremacy was a national phenomenon. So I'm not so worried about memorials going up in the North and the South when you understand that, you know, this reconciliation between North and South was on the backs of African Americans. Okay, one more quick question. For, for Liz. Yes. Oh, what doesn't matter. Go ahead. Yeah. We gave the city two, two recommendations about the Lee statue. We said that um, 
One recommendation was built on my understanding that the Lee statue is an historical record and that should be read as it should be available to be read as an historical record, that it should not be um, destroyed or removed. And, uh, and so he said, um, leave the statue where it is, uh, but transform it visually so it opens up to multiple interpretations. Um, the other, but we said that's plan A. Uh, plan B was uh, there were strong arguments for removing it uh, within the city, putting it in another place within the city where it would still be read. Uh, the recommendation for the Jackson statue was to leave it in place but also transform it visually so it opens up to multiple interpretations. Um, the city uh, council then took those and decided to remove the Lee statue to another place in the city. That's now for the courts to decide whether council has the right to do that. I'll say on behalf of all of us, thank you for coming. Hope you have a great time back at UVA.